Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Breakpoint Podcast. Myself, Marcus Smith, and my main man, Frank Nicolazzi. Frank, welcome to today's show. Even though you're the co-host, I still want to welcome you into my home. It's very nice to have you here. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's pretend that we haven't been talking for like a solid 45 minutes before this episode began, but but sure, man, whatever works for you. Hey, listen, you know, we got to make it authentic for, the, for our listeners, so... Um, Today we have uh, part one of a very interesting uh, series that actually Frank came up with, um, and I think it's a great idea, and I think that that's something that we should discuss more on this podcast, is a beginner series into tennis, because tennis is an extremely difficult sport to kind of jump into and really understand, and we want to simplify that process and kind of give viewers and those who are interested in the game kind of a gateway into the more complexities of the game and you know so that that next time the new york open uh new york open jesus wow that was a deep cut rest in pepperonis yeah big time um shout out to the dallas open for putting on a decent tournament actually but uh anytime you know the u.s open is on tv or in person here in new york or wimbledon or something like that is on viewers will actually kind of have an idea of what's going on instead of you know oh uh why are they playing on grass you know it's like well okay we're going to explain why in this in this series so the first episode we're going to do is basically a beginner's guide on how to watch tennis and what are the basic play styles frank kick us off what are the basic play styles basically uh, we're going to talk historically and also modern day and maybe what we're going to see in the future so but let's talk historical briefly to give the, our viewers some context yeah, so I think the story of tennis um, ultimately starts with one play style that dominated for, I mean, it's got to be like 75% of tennis history, which is the serve and volley. Um, so what the serve and volley is, is it's quite literally the name. You hit a big serve, and then you immediately charge the net to close down the point, um, and you start volleying, which is when you hit the ball out of the air. Um, this is the play style that dominated tennis from its inception up until probably the 1980s with Yvonne Lendl with some changes in between. But, uh, the players that you can think of for serve and volley would be somebody like John McEnroe is probably the best serve and volley or pure serve and volley of all time. My opinion. Um, Stefan Edberg is another fantastic example. Uh, from the 1980s and 90s. And then finally, maybe to a lesser extent, but probably the last of the servant volleyers is Pete Sampras. Um, you would very often see servant volley at Wimbledon specifically, any sort of faster court, you would see servant volleyers, but now not as much. Uh, it's effectively a really dead play style. There, there are some left such as Maximi Cressy, who we talked about during the Australian Open, made a decent run, actually. And Jordan Thompson is another one that comes to mind that sort of plays like it. You know, the other ones that probably like that kind of now are the big servers. So John Isner, Riley Opelka, they'll serve and volley on occasion uh, on like a, a grass court, something like that. They'll definitely serve and volley. But I think the biggest way that I would describe serve and volley in the context of today's game is if you watch any sort of Wimbledon highlights from even the early 2000s, late 2000s, you would see the front of the court by the net be completely, you know, dirt, browned, like there's no grass left. Whereas if you look at the finals of last year, the front of the net is like still pretty green. <laughs> like it's completely fine because nobody really uh, charges the net anymore for, for a variety of reasons. But 
that's that's how I would sur- summarize the serve and volley. Um, you got anything to add to that, Marcus? I do. And for those wondering why the serve and volley, why why the serve and volley was the popular play for so many years, is because uh, of the, mainly the equipment, right? So tennis rackets started out as wooden rackets, which you've probably seen in like an antique shop or at some, you know, if you're at a tennis club, they have it hanging on the wall. And wooden rackets had extremely small heads, which means it was extremely difficult to actually make contact with the ball in comparison to today's game where the rackets are much bigger. The they, were also, is- they were also sub- substantially heavier, right? Wooden rackets, way, way heavier. You just could not get the swing speed to physically hit the ball um, as hard as we do now, as well as the strings. Not, we're not even going to talk about the strings, but it would not have been possible to play as like a baseliner back in like the 1950s exactly so these players basically wanted to hit the ball as little times as possible to win the point so you know you would serve and you would go to net which you could volley which you didn't really need to swing at all you would basically just punch the ball or touch it Um, and then from there you know the point would basically be over so that dominated tennis for so many years and they started coming out with aluminum you know titanium they come aluminum did i just say aluminum no they didn't make aluminum. do they make no i think it's just titanium just titanium right aluminum jesus like a playing with some tinfoil god um they came out the titanium and then you know they eventually came out with the modern technology of graphite which allowed players to swing harder swing faster generate more spin more power so what happened was all this all these factors were coming in at once and everybody started to move back because now you needed more space more time to hit the ball and now in today's game you'll see guys standing you know six to eight feet behind the baseline swinging their racket as hard as they can, the ball flying way over the net and then dipping into the baseline on the other side of the court. So tennis has changed tremendously from there, um, and it's kind of produced some very interesting new play styles, though. And the pioneers of kind of the, you know, today there's basically two types of baseliners. You're either an offensive baseliner or a defensive baseliner, right? So sometimes uh, an offensive baseliner will, usually somebody's got a really good forehand, um, backhand's kind of constant, but it's really the forehand. They like to move into the court, take big cuts, really can take the control of the point. You can think of a Roger Federer, who's more so of an all-court player, but he also has an aggressive baseliner. Oh, come on, Frank. You know he's an aggressive baseliner. Yes, yes and no. I, I count him as different. I think of all around as a different play style. I think Roger is very distinct from a Rafa or a Novak Djokovic or an Andy Murray. And those are the players that I would sort of use to describe like the baseliner attitude. Like Roger Federer, when he's playing on like a faster court, will will go up to net quite often. Like he will use, when I think of a baseliner, I think of a player that focuses on the horizontal aspects of the court to win points. Whereas Roger is not only using the horizontal aspects, he does use the vertical aspects very much so. And that's why I would define him as an all-rounder. Whereas somebody like Novak and Rafa and even and Andy Murray, who I think is like the perfect example of a defensive baseliner, they are almost entirely focused on the width horizontal aspects of the court to win points. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, what I meant is that Federer has aspects of a baseliner in his game. Now, Federer, yes, absolutely, yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent true. Yes, he's a whole different animal just because he's so talented. It can do so many things, like Frank just alluded to. But um, an offensive baseliner, you could think a la Alexander Zverev in today's modern game. He's an offensive baseliner. He likes to take big cuts out of the ball. Um, but Stefanos- he's actually flipped. He's flipped from the paradigm that you spoke about that you spoke about earlier. 
his backhand is his aggressive shot. His forehand is kind of just the, I'm just going to bunt this over the net and be constant. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be forehand. Again, most of the time it is, right? So we see exceptions like Tzverev and once in a while. Felix Auger Aliassime, that's somebody who's a classic aggressive baseliner. Loves to hit a big forehand, backhand steady. Loves, you know, to take the ball on the rise. Denis Shapovalov is somebody who loves to step in the ball, you know, really crank it. Um, and and what we've seen also in years past is defensive baseliners are guys who usually stand way back in the court, retrieve the ball. They can also be considered counterpunchers, or in late, you know, and sometimes in the um, the local tennis terms, they could be called pushers. But on the pro tour, they're defensive baseliners because they're going to make a lot of balls, run a lot of balls down, and force you to make errors. Defensive baseliners generally don't win as much as offensive baseliners, in my opinion. And the some of the defensive baseliners here, hear me out, Frank. Rafael Nadal was a defensive baseliner at the beginning of his career. Now, he would win the French Open, and we're going to get into surfaces in another episode. But what made him so good and what you put here on our little you know, pre uh, pre pod sheet here is that he's an offensive baseliner that's how he started winning hard court and grass court slams because he transitioned to be an offensive baseliner same thing with andy murray andy murray at the beginning of his career complete defensive baseliner that's how he won those two grand slams because he was an offensive baseliner yes so that was the point that i was trying to make when i when i sort of wrote this outline was that novak and rafa both started as very much defensive baseliners they just got the ball back they never really went for winners very much unless it was just you know a ball in the middle of the court it was more so just being a wall and making you make a mistake um it was only when they transitioned in Rafa's case it was the late 2000s in Novak's case it's 2011 um like literally it's just a very specific year um yeah I'm wondering what else he started doing that year no comment um (laughs) not touching that there's no way it wasn't just gluten-free man (laughs) uh yeah I'm definitely not touching that but yeah Novak and Rafa stepped into the court more and began to sort of really transition their game to being much more offensive. And I would say now their games are both wildly more offensive than they ever were, but that's due to age, right? Not, but the thing to mention here is that it has become more offensive, but they have kept their defensive capabilities, which has made them basically the best tennis players of all time because when needed, they can be defensive baseliners and they still have those skill sets that they had early on in their career, but they've been what made them stand out in comparison to other players that they've built this offensive baselining style, but they can still fall back to defensive baselining style when needed. And that's why those two guys are better defensive players than Federer. And that's part of the reason why they're considered partially, you know, better than Federer is because they do have that capability that Federer doesn't. Yeah, um, I mean, I disagree with that, obviously, but, but, uh, but wait, yeah. wait, wait, what part do you disagree with? That they're better than Federer. Really? We're not getting into this, but I, I, yes, I, I do agree that they're they have a defensive aspect to their game that Federer does not, right? But I will also say this: Roger Federer, for a very large portion of his career, was considered the best offensive player in tennis and defensive player in tennis at the same time. The first player to ever do that, to ever really like define that scope of being like an offensive baseliner and a defensive player at the same time, 
was Roger Federer. Like Andy Roddick quite literally said that in the documentary as to like why the fall of American tennis, right? <laughs> With Marty Fish. Um, but, but, but discounting that for a second, yes, I, I do generally agree with the notion that offensive baseliners will find more success than defensive baseliners. I will say this though, defensive baseliners, you're going to get much more, cons- many more consistent results. And I think that it's, if you're a consistent defensive baseliner, you're going to be a top 20 player in the world. You may not win like tournaments. You may not win, you know, X, Y, Z, but you'll be a top 20 player. Um, And I think that in order to really take that next step, you do need to become more offensive. However, the player that I think exists today that defies that paradigm that I just said is Daniil Medvedev. Daniil Medvedev is a defensive baseliner through and through. I do not think there's an ounce of offensive play to his game outside of one aspect. And what do you think that one aspect is? His serve, but I disagree with you. He is sneakily an offensive baseliner as well. Uh, disagree, but I do. I, I agree that it's the serve, right? Um, Daniil's serve is so, and I think this is why Daniil is so incredibly good, is when we think of defensive baseliners, we're talking about guys like Diego Schwartzman or um, David Ferrer or uh, Gilles Simon is another one that comes to mind. None of the three guys that I mentioned have good serves. They have like below average to average serves. Daniil Medvedev has one of the top, in my opinion, top five, top 10 serves on tour and is playing as a defensive baseliner. So the reason why his style is so effective is that he's able to win points pretty quickly on his serve and conserve energy. And then he just devotes his entire physical fitness and like grindiness, if you will, to breaking down the opponent's serve. Um, and that's why Daniil is so effective. Yeah, no, I mean, so I know where you're coming from with Daniil is that he does, I think what I mean by sneakiness is that he doesn't off, if you just watch him, it looks like he's defensive baselining. But if you really look closely, he is an offensive baseliner in some moments because he is able to, offensive baselining does not necessarily mean being able to whack the hell out of the ball for winners. He knows how to aggressively force himself with court positioning and the consistency and pace of his ball into the opponent's weakness in spots where they're uncomfortable. It's not going to be winners right off the bat. We're not thinking... So if you think offensive baseline, or maybe you're thinking a la Nadal, where he just cracks forehand winners, Federer able to crack forehand winners, Djokovic able to just step in and just kill any ball, basically, from both wings. Medvedev is not going to do that, but he is, in a sense, not your traditional offensive baseliner, but he absolutely has those capabilities because if he was purely a defensive baseliner, he would not be winning Grand Slams. No, I, 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 I just, I hear you. I think Daniil, when he wants to, he can be very sneakily offensive, like you said, but I do, I, I do think of him as the archetype of, de, of a defensive baseliner. If like if I was gonna pick anyone on tour today who is de- like the definition, like a top level player that's in the definition of a defensive baseliner, for me it is it is Daniil Medvedev. And I also want to point out two historical players that are the foundation of the baseliner playstyle, and that is Bjorn Borg and Ivan Lendl. Um, both of those players were the first two effectively to really uh, stay back and play as baseliners when they were using equipment that was just simply not made for what they were doing. Most players will cite Yvonne Lendl as the basis for all of 
like modern tennis play. Like he, it's him and Andre Agassi, but Andre Agassi even took took it from Lendl. Lendl yeah, is then the base. Lendl obviously took it from Borg. Now, if anybody's, you know, if you want to go on, if you really want to see the contrast of styles, I recommend, you know, if you got a minute, go on YouTube, watch like a Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe match, pull up any match. You're going to see because back then in the day, every it was just serve and volley, come to net, play with a continental grip, which is basically the serving grip, and you can't hit any topspin with this grip. Bjorn Borg is the only guy who had like super long hair, giant legs, and would just run around the court and just hit these long, loopy topspin balls. And everybody was looking at him like, dude, what are you doing? You're never going to win like this. This is insane. But also at the same time, people were fascinated. People had never seen this before. And then he started winning not only on clay courts, which is where he would be assumed to win. When he started winning on grass courts, Frank... That caught people's attention, and that is what produced a Yvonne Lendl, which led to an Andre Agassi, a Boris Becker, these types of players who were aggressive baseliners with big serves, and it kind of catapulted, along with the gear changes and the court service changes as well, kind of catapulted the tennis era away from the net and towards the baseline. And I think it's lovely to see today when players actually are able to come to net, a la Federer, a la a guy like Maxime Cressy, I think it's fantastic to see because there is still a place for net play in today's game. Oh, I think there's a very big part, big, big part of uh, of the game that's still with net play. I think what makes Rafa and Novak so distinct from the other baseliners on tour is they can finish points at net. Like Novak is a fantastic net player now. Rafael Nadal is another fantastic net player now. This is something they did not have early in their career that they have developed because they've realized they need to keep points shorter as they age. Right. And and we've even seen it with somebody like a Yannick Sinner over the past year or so a year or so. I don't know if you've noticed it, but like I have seen him all of a sudden on these short balls or approach shots before he used to hit them and retreat back to the baseline, which is what I would say 90 percent of the players now today do anyway. I think there's been a very like poignant, uh, you know, coaching decision to tell him to finish points at net. And I've seen him finish points at net, and it makes me very like happy and encouraged to see that because that's what you, he needs to do. That's what I think a lot of these players, to really take that next step and go into like the top echelon, you need to be able to finish points at net. Um, you can't be grinding at the baseline all day because there's going to be days where some guy's just going to wall you. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you want to make your life easier, and those opportunities are going to present yourself. If you are an aggressive alien, let's even take, I think somebody who, a la Sinner, has been doing this very well lately, Frank, and that's a good point, is uh, Felix auger Alassim. He is somebody who is a classic, prototypical, aggressive baseliner, who maybe in the past would wait another two to three balls to finish off the point with his forehand. Now he's going for that one big forehand, coming in at, closing the point. It saves his body, it saves him time it's easier for him to win points now and it's going to take his game to another level because players they were used to kind of just okay I'm going to retrieve the ball I know I'm going to get another chance at this now if they just retrieve it he's going to be at the net to close it out and they're going to think to themselves okay now I got to hit better passing shots and that's going to force more margins of error so it's a very it's good to see from these guys because I think that it's very important that they start doing this early on because this is how they're going to peak this is how even Medvedev is not afraid to come to net. And that's why he's also progressed so greatly. And that's why I think he's going to continue to progress is because he's he realizes, okay, I need to come to net. I don't need to be a certain volleyer. I don't need to be an exclusive you know, net player, but the net play has to be in my arsenal. We've seen Alexander Sverev do it. It has improved his game. We got some other things to talk about what's going to improve his game. But 
overall, these new guys are starting to kind of get the memo that, okay, I want to win Grand Slams. I want to be great. I need to come to net to finish. Yeah, well, I think I think that is what's differentiating this quote unquote next gen of players from the next gen that was like in the 2010s. For example, I think these guys have sort of realized they're not going to be able to beat a Rafa, a Novak from the baseline just all day grinding back and forth. They're just not going to be able to do it. They've realized that they need to come to net and develop all the aspects of their game, which is good. And I think it's better for the game of tennis because there was a there was a point there in the 2010s where I I personally was very discouraged with what I thought would be the future state of tennis, where it was just let's stand 20 feet back from the baseline and you know whip the ball with our wrist with a ton of topspin back and forth. And still I, happening. I, I, there is that yeah. concern still, but I I'm less concerned about it, I would say, than I was five years ago. I'm less concerned about it. That's a good point, but I think I'm less concerned about it at the top levels. I think at the, you know, you you know, US Open qualifying challenger kind of ATP two fifty levels, if you go watch those events, they're still doing that and it's getting even worse, really, in my opinion. I think it's at the top levels. And again, this is why these top guys are able to they're able to transition their aggressive baselining games into a volley game, and this is why they're able to win more than their uh, contemporaries, you know, who are playing challenger level events. Yeah, I'm, I, I that I agree with that. I'm I'm with you on that, and I think that's why you've seen somebody like Maximi Cressy have so much success despite really not being that great of a player is because he's playing such a different play style that they are not used to seeing that like he's able to beat like you know most early round people that he'll play it's only when he comes up against like a, you know a top 30 level player that all of a sudden the the disparity becomes more apparent um but let's move on to what i view as the last play style and seems like you may disagree with this but i think of it as the all all around slash variety sort of play style and for me that is there is no one who is a better representation of that archetype than roger federer and that is why so many people are enamored with him and there's really only one player that i can think of today who is even remotely close to that mold of being able to give variety, use all aspects of the court, and play a ton of different play styles when needed. And that is... Stefano Tsitsipas. Bingo. Yes. It's got to be Tsitsipas. Whether it's the classical Eastern style forehand that he uses, the one-handed backhand that he's able to get a ton of variety on, I, I just... I, I And this is why... Good net me, player too, by the way. Very huh? good net player. He's a fantastic net player. Always has been, too. I mean, watch him when he's 19 years old. The guy goes up to net and is fearless and closes out points. This is why, you know, personally, right, and I've, I've the first one to rag on him on this podcast, this is why I am so hard on him, personally, is because I am a very big fan of his. And I think that Stefano Tsitsipas' ceiling is really as high as he wants it to be. If this guy focused on certain aspects of his mental game i i actually don't think there's much to fix on the court i think it's just all mental with him if he fixed the mental aspects of his game i truly believe there is a novak djokovic like switch that could happen for him in terms of like when novak fixed his mental ass the mental aspects of his game and tweaked some of the 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 
the, the on-court su- things as well with the serve and, and everything that happened and, in And the supplements he was taking. No comment. No comment. Um, I think we could see a player that, that could really reach, uh, you know, an all-time level of, of domination, right? Maybe, you know, not, I'm not, and by domination, I don't mean like he's going to win 20 grand slams, but do I think that he has the potential to be a guy that wins 10-plus? Yeah, I do. I, I think he does. Absolutely. Like the game is there. He has the potential on every surface, hard, grass, and clay to to be competitive. I mean, we've seen the guy get to a Roland Garros final and clean up at Masters 1000s, by the way. We did that last year. His game itself, the variety aspects of it, perfect for grass, especially in comparison with everybody else that's out there right now. And on hard courts, we just saw the guy get to the semifinals of Australia again, right? So I, I, I just think that's why I'm so hard on him. If you hear me be very hard on Tsitsipas on this podcast, and Marcus probably is the same equivalency with like Zverev, like that is why I'm so hard on him is because I, I really think he has the highest ceiling of any of the players on tour right now, in my opinion. For sure. And I think out of the kind of the quote unquote new big, I'm going to deem it the new big three with quotations here between Tsitsipas, Zverev, Medvedev. He's clearly the most talented by far. He's got just the most natural kind of tennis talent out there. Medvedev is extremely unorthodox. Zverev is talented, but mainly from a baselining perspective, not really an all-court player whatsoever. He's trying to become one, um, but Tsitsipas just kind of has that natural gift where you're like, all right, this guy just knows how to swing a racket. And he, again, you like you mentioned, because he's an all, if you're an all court player, you're basically going to be a threat at every tournament, right? You, you might not be the favorite. Like I don't think he's the favorite at Wimbledon, really, for now. But he will be a threat at Wimbledon at some point if he's able to kind of clean up his volley game and his transition game. He's already a threat at, at, on clay court events. He wins Masters there and he makes the final of the French Open, yeah, uh, Australian Open, hard courts. He's doing well. I think that. He's really the only prototypical all-court player I can think of on the top of my head. I can't, you know, no one else in the top 10 is kind of popping at me. Even the top 15, I mean, yeah, Grigor Dimitrov is kind of an all-court player. Yeah, he is. Problem is, he's just not that relevant anymore, you know, um, that even listeners here would really know about. So The, as the, far issue, as the, only- with the issue with Dimitrov is that Dimitrov is an all-court player. I will give him that, but he's a straight B across everything which yes technically means you're an all-court player because he's a perfect b b plus at everything and like that's good but like the second that you come up against any sort of specialist on that surface you're done that's it you know game's over right the thing that differentiates um you know a sitsi pass is that sitsi pass is probably an a minus at every single aspect of the game which means that he is going to beat even the specialists on that surface and is going to be really competitive do you know who I was hoping that would become an all-court player who I thought maybe had the potential and could have done it and would be very successful in their career? They're still playing, by the way, this person. Dominic Team. Yes, yes. I, I I deserve props for that. Yeah, big time, big time. That was some serious telepathy going on here. I really thought Dominic Team because early in his career was a pure clay quarter. Very you know, defensive. Look, very at, look how far back he stands. Defensive he stands like baseliner. 20 feet back. And then he started getting more... So he was an aggressive baseline in the sense that he could hit the hell out of the ball. The problem was he was hitting it from so far back that it really didn't make that much of a difference. Then he started... He shortened up his swings. He started getting closer to the court. That's how he won the U.S. Open. 
I was hoping that he would take it another step further, really develop his transition game better, and then he could be you know, a potential threat at a Wimbledon or at every hardcourt major more so. Now, I know he got injured, and we're going to see what he does when he comes back, but he's somebody who I think we could categorize in an all-court. Like, he could be an all-court player. I think he could. If he focused on the net game a little bit more in the transition stuff, he he should be an all-court player. I think naturally anyone that uses a one-handed backhand is is more of an all-court player just because that that stroke you can't just sit back and hit it. You need to step into the court and hit the ball on the rise in order to be successful. Um, yeah, there's also more finesse associated with the one-hander. You can hit a better slice. You're going to automatically have a better volley because you're so used to grabbing the racket with one hand on the throat. There's a little bit more finesse to a one-hander's game all around, unless you're talking about some guy from Argentina who just goes, hey! yeah, from like 30 feet behind the baseline. Yeah, or, or Guga Kerton, another Shout one. Shout out to Carlos Burlock. That is a deep cut. Yeah, it's a, that's 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 beyond the scope of a beginner uh, basic play style episode. But yeah, so so we hope this episode has been helpful for you guys in terms of like trying to understand the different play styles that go into the game and, and sort of how to like view these matchups. Um, you know, I wouldn't really say that there's the thing that differentiates tennis maybe from other sports also is that like each of these play styles doesn't necessarily have an advantage over the other. Um I think like there's there's not there's nothing to say that a baseliner is going to be favored over a serve and volleyer or a serve and volleyer is going to be favored over all around like there's there's just so many other variables that go into it that 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 that's not really like a thing. Tennis, there are two sports that I like to compare tennis to. Um, one is baseball, and specifically kind of pitchers, right? Not every just because you're you know like an Araldis Chapman who can throw the ball 110 miles an hour doesn't mean that you're a better pitcher than a guy who's able to throw consistently in the high 80s and has a good curveball or, you know, some really good placement. Shout out to Greg Maddox. There you go. Or boxing is another, like, tennis and boxing really go hand in hand. Two sports that I have thought of, too. Yeah. Look at this. Well, the telepathy. I mean, let's, well, let's go. Know. Frank and I. We should hanging. host a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We've been hanging out a bit too much. Uh but seriously, boxing, you know, you have your classic counterpunchers like a la Floyd Mayweather who goes for technical knockouts, not really looking to go for a big blow. And then you've got guys like, you know, Mike Tyson who are just, you know, I'm coming swinging. I don't care what happens. And there are some good all-around boxers too. Um, I can't really think of one right now. Can you think of a good, like, all-around boxer? I guess Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. Ali. Yeah. yeah. I guess a good all-around kind of guy. Um None of them exactly, you know, they just happen to be so good within their specific craft. That's what made them so special. But no no style is specifically better. And it's really interesting when you get, you know, the aggressive baseliner to play the defensive baseliner because you are like, okay, who's going to win this matchup today? Or the all-court player playing against another all-court player. That's something that's really interesting too. I think when Tsitsipas plays like a Grigor Dimitrov or even a Federer, it gets pretty creative out there. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think the two matchups that if you want to see two distinct styles at play, here's the two matchups that you watch. One, John McEnroe versus Bjorn Bork. And two is in the late 2000s, Roger Federer versus Rafael Nadal. Those two, that's going to give you all four of the play styles that we just covered. John McEnroe for serve and volley, Bjorn Borg, uh, some sort of baseliner, probably offensive baseliner, but like that wasn't really a thing back then. It was just baseliner. Um, <laughs> like he literally invented it. Um, three would be Roger Federer for all around, and then four would be Rafa for defensive. But he, that was a that was him at his defensive baseline best. So 
if you watch those those four guys, like those, like you're gonna get the full scope of what tennis is, what the matchups are, what the play styles are. It's gonna be very distinct for you to see. Um, now there's a little bit more, you know, blurred lines that go on, but. Um, that's going to be an entirely separate topic for another episode, but we hope you guys have enjoyed this one and, uh, be sure to hit us up on Instagram at breakpoint podcast seven on the gram. Uh, be sure to send us a carrier pigeon to zip code one, one, three, six, one. Uh, we also take faxes if you send it to the local staples as well. Yes. And we're thinking about getting a PO box at the, at the USPS store. Um, please message us or DM us if you want to be on the pod. I actually got a couple of requests recently. I mean, we're happy to have folks on. We are always open to having discussions. If you uh, think that we have some flaming hot takes, which apparently we do, according to one friend of mine, um, we will gladly have you on and talk it out. Uh, I think a lot of people will want to be on when we do a GOAT debate one. But we're going to wait until the careers are done of those players to do that. Yeah, Anyways, guys. I'm not, we're not doing a GOAT yeah. debate one anytime soon. No, not anytime soon. Anyways, guys, you're, uh, thank you very much. And we will see you for part two of the Beginner Tennis Series podcast. Actually, it's part three. We did part, part one. Three. We did part one. Part one. How to watch a tennis match. This was part two. Oh. Yeah, part three. Jesus, thank God I have Frank here. <laughs> All right. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening.